0: Welcome to Hospitals in Focus, from the Federation of American Hospitals. Here's your host, Chip Kahn. Each November, FAH takes a week to recognize the importance of rural hospitals and the vital role they play in communities across the country. That role has been even more prominent during the COVID-19 pandemic. Over the past many months, the pandemic has wreaked havoc on rural America, but in rural communities, frontline caregivers at rural hospitals answered the call, saving countless lives. Today, we are joined by the CEO from one of those hospitals, Doug Weaver, is the CEO of Hillcrest Hospital Prior in Oklahoma. He has seen firsthand how rural hospitals have been impacted, especially in his area of Northeast Oklahoma. During this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into what his hospital and other similar facilities have faced during these unprecedented times. Doug, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Well, Chip, thanks for having me on. Look forward to the visit.
0: To get started, Doug, I know you have had a long career in hospitals. You've mainly worked in rural areas of Oklahoma. Would you tell us a bit about yourself, your experience before Hillcrest, and maybe some highlights of your career?
1: Sure, be glad to. Uh, Like I said, been in healthcare a little over 40 years. Started in the clinical area, but uh, got into management early in the career. Been fortunate to uh, lead some great hospitals. Uh, Most of my experience is in rural healthcare in Oklahoma, and I was at a large hospital. In Southwest Oklahoma, and it was a, a trust authority county hospital, and we were the regional referral that the rural hospitals sent in. So, got to experience that side of the healthcare also. Ran two other rural hospitals in another part of the state, and then came here about eleven years ago, and uh, started working for the present uh, hospital that I'm in. And you ask her about some accomplishments, I uh, you know to keep it brief. I think one of the accomplishments I guess I'm you know most proud of is to Able to help a couple of hospitals do complete turnarounds. That's not only on the financial, but to uh, get them where the community got involved. We definitely developed cultures to where the people that worked for us in the hospitals put the uh, patient first. It was patient safety, patient quality, and we had great success with that. So those communities continue to have health care. And, um, you know, it's good to, to leave a place and say that uh, maybe we affected somebody's life in a positive manner. So uh, again, uh, the hospital I'm at here has uh, been a great hospital to work for, a uh, little different with the type of uh, management that we have and uh, who we're associated with now, but uh, all of them are a little different, but I've been blessed to have some great places to work.
0: Well, I guess over the last 18 months, uh, you've, you've seen so much with the pandemic, probably unprecedented in your, career, your long career too, as well as all of us in healthcare. So when it comes to the recent surges, over this last year and particularly the summer, how was your hospital and your community and, and your patients impacted?
1: We were definitely impacted. Uh, you make a good point. I've uh, been doing this a few years and uh, I don't think any of us have seen what's happened in the last 18 to 19 months. No different in this community. The first surge that happened last year was a little different for us about 45 miles outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is, of course, definitely a large referral center. One of our major metro hospitals that we refer to is located there. They were seeing mostly the brunt end of the sickness. Uh, We did see some come through here. We did have COVID patients come in. It was strange for us. A lot of our Nursing, respiratory therapists, you know, the different clinical people have not uh, worked in those type of areas. It was strange to them to try to treat them uh, with all the PPE and the stuff going on. Emergency room was definitely affected with those type of people walking in the door and not knowing whether they had COVID or not. The one that really hit us was a second surge. It really affected our community. For our community, about 27, 28 percent of the people in our community actually, had the COVID virus, uh, which was very high. We're a county of about 40 to 42,000 people. Out of the county, we had 17%, I think, was the number that was affected. So definitely the patients were affected. Our hospital was affected. The second surge is where we got hit real hard. That was a time where Oklahoma, northeast Oklahoma started, and there wasn't any place to send these patients. So what happened to a rural community like us is we became a quasi-tertiary center where we were keeping all types of patients. The, the very, very sick, and uh, it was an experience for us. Our, our you know staff actually had to do things that they weren't used to doing, and uh, rightly so, did a super, super job. Of course, you know, as we see in the news, and it affected us personally, there are some uh, tragedies with families, uh, loved ones. Actually, we lost some employees that had COVID. So, you know, it affected us in a in a big manner here at this hospital.
0: You know, as uh, with many uh, rural hospitals, Doug, and as you pointed out, uh, you're not a tertiary center, so you don't have an ICU. What adjustments or adaptations did you and the staff need to make to deal with these COVID patients who had such high acuity, when you couldn't transfer them to some other hospital.
1: Yeah, that's true. We don't have an ICU here. We have 21 private rooms is what we converted our hospital into, plus our emergency department. We Out of those 21 rooms, we had to retrofit and have the engineering department uh, make 16 negative pressure rooms where we could put those people in it. And that was done in a haste of a moment. I mean, they did a super job of doing that. The emergency department became our what we'd call quasi-ICU. That's where if a patient had to be put on a ventilator instead of putting them on the patient floor, that was our where the most critical people went. And we actually did run an emergency room, have those people in the, those rooms on ventilators. We did have 24-7 doctor care, which was why we put them there. And, you know, the ED nurses are really more used to the trauma, those type of critical situations of running cardiac drips or the different types of medicine that had to be put in. So that became our ICU, and we were holding people for many, many hours because, again, there was no room in the inn anywhere. We were trying to go as far as five to six states out from Oklahoma trying to get patients. That's all the way to North Dakota, Colorado, New Mexico, Iowa. And uh, people were actually calling our system office, which is in Tulsa, you know, trying to transfer people to Oklahoma. So it was a critical time. Again, that's the retrofits we had to do. And uh, so we practiced ICU medicine in our emergency room. And then the less sicker COVID patients that didn't need ventilators were on our patient floor.
0: Doug, what role did telemedicine play during this period in the way your hospital operates
1: Telemedicine to us is probably becoming one of our uh, staple services. We, at that time, were doing telemedicine with our hospitalist program, reaching out to physicians in Tulsa after hours, and where you bring an iPad into a patient room, and they can talk to the doctor, and the nurse can utilize that uh, type of modality. When the COVID hit, we started using that in our emergency department, and we hooked into Doctors in Tulsa at our main hospital that were intensivists, pulmonologists, infectious disease, all of those types that probably you don't see in rural healthcare. And so they were communicating directly one on one with our physician in the emergency room and with our nurses, and that's how care was given. Uh, they would help with the ventilator patient or an infectious disease patient of what type of antibiotics we had to put in for that COVID patient. Definitely, we had the personnel that could handle that, but it was a communication tool that was a I'm going to say, a life-saving thing for us where we had real-time physicians working with us.
0: I assume you see that extending into the future. Are there other ways telemedicine, you think, could come to impact care in rural areas?
1: I think it's going to be a staple. I think telemedicine is the future of rural health care. You know, we can't be all things to all people, and telemedicine is that conduit to where we can tie in. We will be, uh, you know, in today's time, you have to be very sick to be in a hospital. And in the if the major metro centers, you know, fill up, then telemedicine will help us keep patients here at home. A lot of people don't have the privilege to travel and to go to, to different places. I think you'll see rural health care depend on telemedicine to keep physicians and a physician presence, whether it's cardiology or pulmonology, some of those where uh, they're not coming out all the time or we don't have 24 seven care. This is how I think this care is gonna be given in the future. So hospitalist programs, we can't keep hospitalists, you know, every hour in the hospital. So it's became a staple for us. That's how we practice medicine now, It's through telemedicine, so.
0: You know, during the first months of of COVID, uh, there was a lot of discussion about the heroes uh, in the front line, in hospitals, in EMS. I've had a chance though, to talk to several frontline workers during the COVID crisis more recently. And one thing I've heard about lately is what I'll call hero fatigue. What are you seeing among your staff and how as a leader, do you keep people motivated when the pressure of COVID uh, seems to just keep extending over time?
1: Chip, that's a great point. Uh, We are experiencing just what you talked about, hero fatigue. And I want to say every person in the hospital is a hero, from the admission person all the way to that RN that works at night or that respiratory therapist that's taking care of a COVID patient. They're tired. They really are. And what, what you just stated is it's not letting up in a sense. You know, there's a little lull right now, which we're very gracious and thankful for, But they're tired and they're coming to us to the point to say, hey, I didn't sign up for this. You know, in rural America, again, with hospitals that don't have intensive care and we don't do the type of medicine where a lot of people, you know, I'm going to say graciously pass away, our people have seen a lot of that and that's affected them. We've actually had doctors that uh, were in our hospital, you know, was to the point with fatigue and, you know, they're heroes in their own sense, but they were telling me that they didn't sign up for this either maybe it's time for them to to get out. So when you see RNs that's practiced 30 years and are, you know, great great RNs saying that they're tired, they just need a break, they need to get away from this. Uh, it's not what they want to do anymore. It's become the number one problem in healthcare is, is our labor shortage and labor. So we are experiencing that here. You talk about leadership, that's again talking to a lot of peers across the country. We have to we're leading different, and I'm not sure you can put any you know particular thing on that. But you know, you support them. You can do all the things of whether you give them free meals and all the gimmies that you want to give them. But sometimes they just want somebody to come up and say thanks and put an arm around them and you know tell them that we support them. And I think that's how we're leading is to become part of that support system. We're there for them. It's not always about money, which but is a big part to you know keep them. But sometimes it's just that thank you that they need and somebody to to say, hey, I'm here with you.
0: You know, from this pandemic, we've had these staffing issues that that you're talking about. Do you think, uh, looking into the future, that the staffing questions are going to be sort of endemic and you're going to be dealing with them once we get beyond COVID in terms of making sure you've got sufficient numbers of nurses and techs and others to serve the patients in your hospital?
1: Yeah, I use a good word. It is endemic. We, we've noticed that now. We think it's going to get worse. I think us out in the trenches or in the field are seeing that. We know it's not over yet. Uh, this year has been very, very tough, but we know it'll go into next year. Again, number one crisis in healthcare is labor. And I think if we had to sound the horn to whoever it may be, to the policymakers, to the the business leaders of the world, whatever it's going to be there. That's going to affect healthcare. Healthcare's got to change. Uh, we've got to figure out how to keep workers in healthcare because healthcare's is not going away. I mean, all of us are going to have a health issue at some time in our life, and we definitely want that R in there. And it's not only, like you, like I said, it's all the clinicians. It's, it's everyone in the hospital healthcare industry that is feeling this. So again, probably the number one thing right now that we're dealing with in healthcare.
0: Uh, Hillcrest Pryor is part of Ardent Health Services, one of the Federation's members, I might add. Can you talk a bit uh, about what it's like to be part of a larger healthcare system as a rural hospital and how that has helped you, and particularly during this pandemic, what role the system played versus just being an independent hospital?
1: I think the system is what saved us. I think having a system approach we were able to take care of the patients we took care of because of who we were with. That comes all the way from the supplies that we needed. When a system can purchase supplies internationally and have it drop shipped to a location and then drop ship to our hospital, as an independent hospital uh, standalone, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So from the materiality of things, of having them touch those items, that definitely helped us. On the personal side, when you have medical professionals at the corporate office or our divisional office, we would have calls two times a week and uh, talk about everything from what's going on at each hospital, the new treatment methods, what supplies we needed as of yesterday, today, tomorrow. That was a big plus. So when you have a large system such as our, we're not large, but I mean quite a few hospitals in our system, it's great to have that that support. and. Whether it's a financial support or, like you said, the people support, that's about the only way a lot of places could have survived is with the system approach.
0: Has your hospital been impacted by the pandemic relief programs created by Congress, like the Provider Relief Fund? And and if it has, uh, sort of what role has it played in terms of your continuing to assure access for patients in the surrounding areas?
1: Sure. We uh, took advantage of that, and I think Arden as a company took advantage of that. That's another positive thing as uh, being part of assistance such as Arden. Arden has the expertise to be able to maneuver through those complex ways to, to be able to, to optimize you know, the use of those federal programs. It did help us, you know, with the, whether it's labor costs, supply costs, uh, buying uh, capital equipment. We definitely took advantage of that. I think uh, we need that going forward. Rural healthcare is not out of the woods. And so Arden is a big player in that. Of course, through you know the support they have uh, on a national level, that's, that's what helps us.
0: Sort of keeping on that tack, if you had a chance to talk to lawmakers up here in, in D.C. directly, what would you tell them about the community impact of smaller rural hospitals like yours and what you need? in terms of help to, to keep serving the community.
1: You know, a lot of people in the beltway are in Washington, of course, quite a few of them are from rural areas, but I guess my talk to them, which I've been to Washington and I go to you know Oklahoma city and I, I play, you know, that game also is I make sure that they understand how much of an economic impact we are. Sometimes we're the largest employer in these communities. Uh, We have a great workforce. It provides uh, stability to the community where people have the chance to to get local health care. They don't have to travel. But we cannot let that go. I think as an economic driver, uh, it helps bring industry into our area. A lot of people look at schools and health care, you know, if they're going to be moving to a community. And if I was talking to the policymakers, I'd say, hey, the rural health care is needed. Rural economic development is needed. And We need to have those funds continuing to come to rural America. You know, standalone hospitals are are almost a thing of the past. That's just, we can't, you won't see those very much anymore. So we are going to need support through systems. We're going to need support through policy to be able to stay alive and to keep these hospitals open.
0: Doug, this has just been terrific. And uh, I want to express our appreciation for your service. Uh, Just so good to spend time with you this afternoon.
1: Well, thanks for having us, and I appreciate sharing our story.
0: Thanks for listening to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Learn more at FAH.org. Follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and follow Chip at ChipCon. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hospitals in Focus. Join us next time for more in-depth conversations with healthcare leaders.